What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. This is Anthony. And this is James. And today we're going to be diving into the film Sicario, which was directed by Denis Villeneuve in 2015. This movie stars Emily Blunt, Benicio Del Toro, Josh Brolin, Danielle Kaluuya. It's about an idealistic FBI agent who is enlisted by a government task force to aid in the escalating war against drugs at the border area between the U.S. and Mexico. The best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is go to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast and become a patron today. Members get special perks like personalized videos, personalized messages, and top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. This is one of my favorite movies of the year, 2015. It's an absolutely stunning, dramatic crime film. Denis Villeneuve is one of our favorite uh, new directors. He's been making movies uh, for the last 10 years or so. And he capped off uh, Prisoners to such a claim that um, when it was announced that he was making a crime film about uh, the cartel, I was just giddy with excitement to see it. And uh, we watched this in theaters, and I was absolutely blown away by this movie. It's it's incredibly heart-pounding. It's thrilling. Uh, the action is fantastic. You got Roger Deakins behind the camera, and the acting is top-notch. And uh, I was absolutely blown away by this film. Yeah, I have three words to describe Sicario. Intense violent and mesmerizing you can't look away from this movie no matter how intense it becomes how graphic it becomes or how disturbing it is and and the the cool thing about the opening of this film is we get that like definition it's kind of like what tarantino did with pulp fiction with the definition of pulp fiction mm -hmm. it's generally sicario means the same thing in italian and in and, and spanish languages it's hitman or assassin and it basically i think what villeneuve and screenwriter taylor sheridan are, are doing is they're setting you up for what kind of movie you're about to watch and that's basically what the whole opening sequence of this film is and taylor sheridan did a great job writing the script and he's actually an actor turned screenwriter he also wrote Hell or High Water. Yeah, so he actually, this was his first script, though, which is mm -hmm. insane. This is his first script. I think he got a Golden Globe nomination. And then, he, yeah, he did Hell or High Water, which got a Best Academy Award nomination for screenplay and also Best Picture nominee. Mm -hmm. And then he also did that great film, uh, Wind River, that stars uh, Jeremy Renner, which is a really cool movie. And mm -hmm. he also is the creator of the show Yellowstone. So he's, he's actually very active post-acting career, but he, he's been diving back into acting as well. And I love his films and I love his writing because it always takes place in the American South in some some area, except for the Alaska film. And it's it, he, his scripts never take place in, in cities um, or urban areas. It's always in rural parts of the country. And I love that aspect to his screenwriting because uh, that's a world you don't often see in big films. Oftentimes places are cities or major urban areas. And so that's a refreshing aspect to his writing that he is that is always seen in all, in all of his films. Yeah, and it reminds me of kind of Cormac McCarthy is uh, mm -hmm. an American writer in general for for his novels like No Country for All Men and Blood Meridian. Like Hell or High Water, it's a it's a heist movie, but it's not a giant it's not giant banks they're robbing. These two are, ro are robbing small banks in rural areas, yeah. so it's more relatable. Yeah, and also like I think All the Pretty Horses is another Cormac novel. All these these two writers, Taylor Sheridan, I'm sure Cormac's a massive influence on his life and his career. Mm -hmm. Writes mostly, mostly mostly stories in that south around along the border of Mexico and Texas, and also his movies tend to have a western vibe to them, like a '60s '70s western vibe set in contemporary times. And I'm sure this film, obviously, it's a it's a movie; it's not a documentary, so I think it's an oversimplification and exaggeration of the issues at the border. Um, I would say that yes, it's entertaining, but I wouldn't say it's completely accurate from what I've read online in terms of people who live in the Juarez or in the Mexico area or Tijuana, which are, of course, very violent cities, the top murder capitals in the world. But still, I think what they did in this film, which obviously it's Hollywood, is they kind of cherry pick the most intense and dramatic things that have happened in this decades long war of drugs. And they kind of intertwine all these little things into one cohesive story. Yeah, I did some research and I read that uh, Juarez, it was like this. It was a very, very dangerous place for a long time, but they've clean, they've been cleaning it up over the last two decades. And I think that uh, for the last 10 years or so, it's been a lot better. It's still obviously a very dangerous place, depending on what part of the city you're in, but it is not quite as dangerous as it is in the, as it is in this movie because like when they enter Juarez there's like three different instances of violence that they hear or see and so I think that also like you said it's a movie so obviously the one scene that they're in Juarez they want to show all, as much as they as they can in that little 10 minute moment so obviously they take liberties the same thing with like we just talked about Whiplash like obviously it's a little extreme and a little dramatic but that's because it's a movie 
Yeah, so they're creating conflict. I mean, Mexico is a very beautiful country. It's rich in culture, full of good, hardworking people. But it, it's impossible to ignore the crime that goes on in this country, like every other country in, in all these, all these in this crazy world we're living in. And people, you know, they may not understand this, but the Mexican cartel it does control entire regions of parts of Mexico. And the drug war it hasn't really gotten much better this century. Of course, there are parts of Mexico where this, there is a lot of this crime. But again, it's not a war zone like it's depicted in, in the movie. It's not every part of Mexico is like this. Most of Mexico is, again, normal, hardworking people and, yeah. and rich culture. But you're, if you're involved in the cartel, you live in a war zone. It's, it is wars going on if you're a part of that system. Yeah, and I just want to do a little background on like the city of Juarez because it's basically this, this main back and forth between, obviously, the border of El Paso texas and then juarez which is a city just across the border it's i think it's about 10 miles away you can literally walk it there's a bridge across this the border that you can walk to uh you can take a quick bus ride if you want to and as of 2019 the top five cities in the world with highest murder rates are all in mexico tijuana was number one the highest murder rate on the planet and then juarez which the the film takes place in parts of fictionally because they filmed it actually outside of mexico city it uh is the second uh highest murder rate on the planet and Per 100,000 people, the murder rate is 104.5 and had 1,522 murders in 2019. In between 2009 and 2019, the murder rate in general of Mexico has almost doubled. And they saw, uh, they saw the highest total ever on record in 2019 with 35,588. That's about 100 murders a day in, in the entire country of Mexico. Whereas in America, there were 16,425 murders that same year. And we have about three times as many citizens in this country. So that's a little perspective on how dangerous it can be in this city, Juarez, in uh, Tijuana. And again, we just want to reiterate, they are cherry picking different aspects of this drug war over the last couple of decades. A lot of people lead lives of crime because it is uh, there is a high poverty rate in Mexico. What is it? 43%. It's about, yeah, somewhere so like that's, that. it's difficult um, for people to make a living out there. So you can understand that why so many people turn to the life of crime. So it, it is... Uh, you can empathize with that uh, and understand it. This episode is sponsored by Writer Duet, the new standard for screenwriting software. If you head to writerduet.com slash raiders this week, you can sign up for a very special 30-day free trial of any of their subscriptions. And we know many of you listening are aspiring filmmakers and aspiring writers. And if you know what screenwriting is like, you know that the format is super weird. It's complicated. You need to have a screenwriting software if you want to do any work. And it's the industry standard. If, you, if your script doesn't look correct, nobody in the industry will read it. They'll throw it right in the trash. So it needs to be up to snuff in terms of the format of your writing. Writer Duet makes the process of writing a screenplay streamlined and easy and very affordable with its cloud-based access from any device, anywhere. Think of it like Google Docs for screenwriting. You can co-write a script with a friend of yours who lives across the world. Famous users in the industry are using Writer Duet, including Jim Ools, who wrote Fight Club, Christopher Ford, who wrote Spider-Man Homecoming. If you go to writerduet.com slash Raiders, this week you will be entered for a special 30-day free trial of any one of their subscriptions. For any of you who sign up with Writer Duet this week, we will personally read the first 10 pages of one of your scripts. Send it to us, and we'll check it out for free. Yeah, and I think that what... One of the aspects of the film that uh, Villeneuve wanted to show in Sheridan is with this character Silvio, just to get right into it. And it's a, kind of the subplot of this, this, this uh, Mexican police officer with his son. And the son obviously just wants the, the, the father to hang out with him. And, and you would think that instead of, uh, out, up besides the law enforcement, they would have maybe what are the drug cartel bosses up to? We very seldom see that we see that one scene with the drug cartel boss who's like by his pool. But other than that, we get Silvio, who's kind of like, uh, a corrupted police officer, and I think they chose that route to, route to empathize with a lot of these people that are, are kind of stuck in the cartel or trapped in the cartel or, or forced into it and they can never get out, and I think that's the entire point of this father-son side story. It's a really fascinating part of the film because uh, we, they show just these small snippets, these small scenes with uh, Silvio and his son and his wife, and uh, they you don't really know how they relate to the story at large because... Uh, they're their own little storyline, and um, obviously they intersect at the climax of the film. But um, when you see these three scenes, it's it's very curious and it's very mysterious, and it makes you want to. It makes you wonder what what is this person? What kind of part are they going to play in the story? So it's a great way 
where they establish this character without really telling us how he's relevant to the plot. So Silvio, essentially, he's a pawn of the cartel. They use him. Um, he's a very small cog in a big machine, but they need him, and they he has no power. He has no control over what he does, and you can even assume maybe he does it to help survive. Maybe he's like, um, maybe he's been forced to do this. You don't even know the backstory, so you could. There are so many possibilities with regards to the motivation of the character, but all in all, he is a pawn of the system, and and he's used by the cartel drug lords and the leadership to um, run drugs for them. And the reason why Silvio is in this movie. It's not because eventually he has a scene to play at the end of the film. Silvio's in this movie because I think he's a direct reflection of Kate. So Silvio is a pawn, and Kate is also a pawn. And Kate, played by Emily Blunt brilliantly, by the way, uh, she is a pawn of the American government, where she doesn't really have too much power and in control of what she's doing. She, she yes, she she's a leader and she heads this task force that handles uh, kidnapping cases. But all in all. What she does doesn't really make a big difference, and she goes where she's ordered to go, and she does what she's told to do. And ultimately, she is a pawn for America, whereas Silvio is a pawn for the cartel. Another relation between Kate and Silvio as being reflections of one another is they both smoke Indian Creek cigarettes. Yeah, that's a great point to make, and Kate's a really interesting character. Because I think a lot of people watch this movie and they think that she's kind of a pointless character. She doesn't have a lot to do, but she is a vehicle for the audience to experience what's happening as well as, like you said, as, as a pawn because she has no idea really what she's ever signed up for until the end of the film. Neither does the audience because what Villeneuve and Sheridan do with this film is they have all these um, forces of power who are completely ambiguous about who they are really, who they work for, what their motivations are, what the overall plan is. And even we have the scene where Reggie, played by Daniel Kaluuya, is, is so pissed off about the situation that he takes Matt, played by Josh Brolin, aside to, to get some information about what's going on because they don't want to be kept in the dark. But little do they know that they're being kept in the dark way more than they, they could ever imagine until they're about to enter that tunnel. Kate's character, her, her transition from the beginning to the end uh, the entire story it challenges her like she's never been challenged before because uh, Kate is a, a very loyal uh, FBI um, officer. Uh, she's loyal to her country and she's loyal to her service and her and her crews. She's an idealist. She's an idealist, and she believes in the rule of law. She believes in in law and order and justice and doing things by the book. The problem that she runs into is the way Matt operates is with this gray middle area of moral ambiguity where. He's a good guy, but in order to do what he does, he needs to work outside the law, and he has to do very uh, unsavory things to get the results that he wants. This completely clashes with Kate's ideals and Kate's perspective on law enforcement, and throughout the film, she keeps getting presented with these situations and these in these uh, moments where she has to either make a difficult decision to either uh, lose uh, loosen up her grip on her law and order mentality or she's accepting a hard truth of the reality of the situation where Matt tells her that what she's doing isn't even do is just a waste of time. She's not doing anything meaningful and what he does actually makes a difference. And so she's having trouble accepting that um in order to make a difference she has to kind of break the law in a lot of ways. And there's this really great visual cue that Villeneuve and Deacons throw into the film is that whenever Kate is met with a a dilemma like accepting a hard truth from either Alejandro or Matt, or she has to make a decision. Like, for example, when she decides to volunteer for the team, there is always an American flag behind her. And if you watch all these scenes, all these moments, there's always a, an out-of-focus, sometimes out-of-American flag in the background of the scene. And the reason why the flag is there is because her she's questioning her loyalty to law and order and her loyalty to justice and doing things the right way and the idealistic American perspective she has on law enforcement. And so she's struggling with that throughout the entire film. Yeah, moral ambiguity is the main theme of this film. And I think it takes a few watches to kind of get what, what that concept is going through in the movie. And like you said, Kate is going through that throughout the entire course of her story, her character arc, because like we said, she's an idealist, but she's beginning to lose faith over time with the system, with the justice system, realizing that 
her shady actions are, are necessary despite her not wanting to do them. And she even goes to her superior officers and, and complains about it and says, can we do this? Is this legal? And they're, they're trying to explain to her, like, this is this is now part of the scheme. This is what we're doing now. And Matt is a consultant, basically, to shake things up. And what they're trying to do is get a reaction from the cartel to to make a mistake or to, to do something unplanned. And, and that's how they try to either build a case or what they're going to basically do is they're sending Alejandro into the cartel into behind enemy lines basically to take out the head cartel boss so that's basically the secret plan of the entire film and Benicio- well, on top of that there's the ultimate uh outcome that they want is to um they're they're trying to destroy the rivals of the bigger cartel because there are multiple cartels warring amongst each other and the american government which used to be able to control the one cartel back in the day they can't control any of these cartels so their goal is to um Get rid of the two rival, two or three rival cartels, so that only one cartel has power and a monopoly over Mexico, so that America can then have some kind of control over that cartel. Yeah, and that's what the term Medellin refers to. So whenever Alejandro, throughout the movie, throughout the story, he becomes more and more ambiguous, and also he he kind of takes on that persona of this this line of good versus evil, and he becomes a tool for kind of both sides throughout this film. He basically. We don't know who he works for, even at the end of the movie. It's like, does he work for the cartel? He works for Colombia. Does he work for the CIA? He works for basically anyone who points him in the direction to kill the head of the cartel because of what happened to his family. Yeah, he and he, he has that great interaction with Kate, and he just tells her, I go where I'm sent. And where he wants to go is to Fausto. Uh, the le- Let's stay on Alejandro. He's, yeah, a, yeah, he's sure. a really fascinating character. I think he's um, I think he's the most interesting, interesting character of the film. I, I think ultimately the... F- Sicario refers to him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Alejandro, uh, he used to be a lawyer and a prosecutor, and he used to work for the uh, cartel. Um, but obviously, we don't know all the events of his past, but for some reason, the cartel turned on him and uh, killed his his wife and his daughter. And since that happened, he has been on this lethal crusade of trying to find the man responsible, Fausto, the leader of that cartel, uh, to kill him, and now he has been working f- he, as a mercenary, pretty much for both sides, because they keep he'll accept whatever job gets him closer to Fausto. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost to get twenty percent off in free shipping all year from Manscaped.com. Two million men have been using products from Manscaped, and let me tell you. It's the best stuff I've ever used. We're in lockdown. You don't want to, you know, neglect your body and you want to keep taking care of yourself for your significant others. And it's really important to use their lawnmower groomer 3.0, which is fantastic. It's got a built-in light. It's waterproof. It's soft to the touch. Their deodorizers, colognes, boxer briefs, everything is fantastic from manscaped.com. Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping year-round. Yeah, he's such an interesting character because he's so mysterious throughout the first half of the film. We have no idea who he is. Who's this guy in this gray beige in this beige suit? Um, who does he work for? What are what's his skill set? He's posed as a mystery for Kate, like up until in that boardroom meeting, but she's kind of fascinated with him where she keeps asking she's asking questions towards him, like wondering what's he doing. He's like on his phone, not even paying attention during this this uh, briefing before their their witness extraction or criminal ex- uh, prisoner extraction. And there's actually an opening scene that was filmed and then cut from this movie, which opened the movie with Alejandro. And there's he's in an interrogation scene where he's uh, drowning a cop underwater in an interrogation room and then kills the cop, then performs CPR, brings him back to life, only to start the torture back up again to, in, to continue the interrogation. And they removed the scene because... It plays better having Alejandro more mysterious and more of an unknown character to us because if we see that, we understand who Alejandro is, what he's capable of, and the ruthless nature that he is that he has inside of him. But by keeping it a mystery, we don't really see what he's really capable of until much later on in the film. Even during the interrogation scene after they get, they get the prisoner back, Guillermo, we, yeah. yeah, we don't even see what he does to Guillermo. We're just we just kind of get insinuated what he does to Guillermo in that scene. That's a great point, and I didn't know about that uncut that cut scene because it wouldn't work. Because if they open the film with that, Alejandro would look as though he he would look like a villain and. Uh, the moral ambiguity and the mystery about him um, is what is so strong about the character because he slowly reveals what he's capable of. And, and that interrogation scene is one of my favorite scenes because the filmmakers decided not to show it, but rather imply it. 
And what happens is he's he's about to waterboard him. They're, he's about to waterboard him, which is obviously illegal. Um, and that's why they turn the camera off when the other agents leave the room. And it's an amazing way to portray the scene because so many filmmakers, they would just show him torturing this man. They would show him torturing Guillermo. And, I mean, obviously it probably would have been an intense scene, but we don't have to see it. And instead what Dylan does is he, he cuts away and he he puts the shot facing the floor. There's a drain on the floor with the bottle of water next to it. And that is implying that waterboarding is about to take place. And it's a, an amazing way to depict that moment. Yeah, I, I understand that it is a kind of a mystery of, of what happens in that interrogation room. Obviously, they insinuate that it is a waterboarding incident, but it's also possible to assume that maybe it was some sort of a molestation scene where he does that to into the interrogation, where you can think of the way he, he enters the room and he parses himself in a completely sexually dominant position on top of Guillermo with his crotch right in his face, and he keeps it there. It's It's kind of... An, an absolute assertion of dominance and you can you can maybe think that maybe he continued that with the sexual torment and torture with it that's what's cool about leaving it ambiguous like yeah. that and also what's interesting about alejandro is about 90 percent of his dialogue was cut by villeneuve and benicio himself because benicio was looking at the script and, and learning about the character and trying to get into the character and, and there's so much dialogue of of Alejandro just like constantly telling his exposition of where he's from or what happened to him in his past and like these these scenes that it doesn't make sense and that wouldn't have worked it, as well. And, and he realized that it makes much more sense to keep him mysterious, keep him silent. It's almost like Gosling's character Driver and Drive. And one of my favorite scenes in the, with Alejandro is when he runs into his his buddy who's like now a suit but still in, active looks, in the drug war. He seems like a politician of some yeah. kind. And it's it's great because it's right before he you think he's just getting water at the bubbler and this is where he takes the entire jug because he's gonna go waterboard Guillermo, and it's it's a great conversation where we get a little backstory of something happened to Alejandro in his past where his friend says, "I'm sorry for what happened to you or what they did to you." So we, we understand that we're, we there's a reason why we should at some point empathize with Alejandro. That's a great point, and Alejandro himself, uh, he has been completely dehumanized from his past from his experiences from losing his family and from um, the, the the killing he's done and the warfare he's been a part of. And uh, because of this dehumanization, um, he has reached a point that um, other people in this film aren't at. And for example, Kate, you could assume she could possibly have the potential to become someone like him and someone like Matt, but ultimately she isn't. And this is where we get that line at the end of the film where uh, Alejandro says that this is a land of wolves and she should leave it because she doesn't belong here. She's a sheep. Because she's a sheep. And what he's saying is that um, this is going to become a total, an all-out war and only killers can be in this war if they want to survive. And Kate is not a killer. She's killed, but she's not a murderer where Alejandro doesn't hesitate before he murders. And this is depicted in that final scene where... Um, after uh, Alejandro uh, holds the gun to her head to sign the report confirming that everything they did was legal, he leaves the apartment, and then um, when he walks out, he's walking away, and then Kate pulls the gun on him, and he just looks at her, and she holds the gun on him for a moment, and she decides not to kill him. And so that's showing that she's not a wolf because she's not willing to do what's necessary to make a real difference, and she's not willing to enter that same moral ambiguity sphere that both uh, Alejandro and Matt are in. So she's not a wolf, but those two men are. Yeah, whereas we know at that point in the film, at the end, we know Alejandro would have no hesitation to to blowing her head off and making it seem like a suicide if she didn't sign those documents. And there's there's a really interesting opening scene with Alejandro where it, it, it gives you a glimpse into his character where you know he's this very cool, calm, collected, quiet guy, kind of always brooding and thinking. And then... On the plane, he falls asleep because, you know, he's he's can let down his guard on this plane. And he clearly is having a nightmare. And you can imagine that he probably has vicious nightmares every time he goes to, to bed. And, you, and that's probably where the only place he actually feels things anymore is in his nightmares. And, and while he dreams and, and uh, he wakes up and uh, Kate wonders if, what was wrong with him because he's, he's shaken awake. He looks terrified for a second. And there's another great line that he says to Kate that shows that her ambiguity, that shows her morals are about to be corrupted. And he says, nothing will make sense to your American ears and you will doubt everything we do, but you will, will understand in time. And basically that's kind of a theme for the entire film where we're dealing with moral ambiguity, good versus evil. Is it is this justified what's happening? Is it necessary? Does that make it okay? 
Does that mean it has to happen? And we never really know the answers to those questions. And that's the big difference between Alejandro and Kate because she has compassion and she has morality and she has humanity still within her. And he's lost all of those things. And I think it's mostly evident in that final scene with Alejandro before the after the climax of the, the tunnel raid where he finds Fausto's house and he... He sits down at the dining room table with Fausto when he's having dinner with his wife and kids and his two sons. And Benicio, he plays it. He's such a great actor. He plays it so well where you can see uh, he's holding so much inside of him. I'm sure this is going to be a big monologue, but like you said, he cut out all of his dialogue. So it works better like this where uh, you think that Alejandro is just going to kill Fausto because he's the cause of his his um, pain and his past. And instead, uh, Alejandro kills Fausto's two sons and his wife right before the man's eyes. And it's the most shocking part of the film. And it's also a defining moment for the character where we finally see the monster he is because he is a monster. But before this, all he, all the only people he killed were um, uh, villains and uh, criminals. And so uh, we had this perspective where he's doing what's necessary and he's with the good guys. So he's doing the right thing, killing these people. But ultimately, when it comes to this situation, he kills three innocent people without hesitation it shows that he's just like fausto or he's become like fausto because of what's been done to him and he wanted to punish fausto the way that by taking his family away from him in front of his very very eyes the way that uh, alejandro's family was taken away from him this episode is also sponsored by movieposters.com use our special promo code raiders 15 to get 15 percent off your order today MoviePosters.com is the number one site to get your posters online today. Don't go to Amazon. I know it's free shipping. The quality is just not there. If you're looking at our set on YouTube, we hope you're watching the show on YouTube as well as the audio format. You'll see that our set is decked out with these awesome posters. They let us choose whichever ones we wanted, and they sent them over to us. These are high quality. Uh, They have every size. They can do framing. They can do backlighting. They can do glass. Whatever you want, MoviePosters.com can handle your needs. Head on over to MoviePosters.com. Use our special promo, Raiders15, to get 15% off your order today. Again, Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com. And we also have our own new movie posters as a form of merch that we're offering to you guys. We made our own custom movie posters that you can buy from MoviePosters.com using our coupon code. To get links to those movie posters, check out the bio. And just to stay on this topic of moral ambiguity, there's this great account digging deeper that... I saw this breakdown of, of the colors of this film, and every time I watched it, I'm like, there's so much beige in this movie. What's with all the beige? And you, you might not notice the first few times you watch it, but now I'm going to explain a great appreciation for the production design, the wardrobe, and overall color schemes of this movie. Where And also, first of all, add filmmakers like this, everything is intentional. It's, this is all done on purpose, so yeah. we get a lot of people in the comments like, oh, that was just an uh, English that's teachers. A stretch. That's Eng- a stretch. English teachers be like, yeah, yeah, get out of here. These filmmakers are masters, and they're doing this for a reason. Very intelligent people make movies for the, for the most part. So beige is everywhere in this movie. It's in the deserts, the wardrobe, the buildings, the walls, the cars, Kate's bathroom, the conference boardrooms, the, the, the military wardrobe, everything. Uh, um, Alejandro has a beige suit. Matt wears beige, and basically beige, it's this color that's sort of in between light and dark, and it's this ambiguous color, and it reflects on the ambiguous nature of the actions of, of the characters in the film, and the film in general, and, you know, when Kate opens up the film, she's she's in the dark, she's in the shadowed truck, and this is that great, insane opening where she goes, and, and she's a tool and a weapon against evil at this point, and she's kind of a reflection of the light as it's pouring through the, inside the truck those beams of light. And uh, that's obviously where we they discovered the bodies inside the walls. And then Kate and Reggie, played by Daniel Kaluuya, they, they both represent law enforcement and idealism. And they both wear blue in the beginning of this movie. Shades of blue, like dark grays, blues. But throughout the course of the film, Kate's shirt, it gets more and more desaturated from blue to, to the more desaturated blue to until gray. it's eventually gray. And then the final scene where it's white. And so she's, not exactly an ambiguous character, but she seemed to have lost her belief in the law and her ideals and her institutions and her systems of, of the FBI and government and law enforcement. And then Alejandro and Matt, when we first really introduced to them together, they're wearing beige. And again, Alejandro has this beige shoot. And, and then when they get on the jet, Matt's also wearing beige and they wear beige a lot in this movie. It's, it's kind of wild when you, the next time you watch this, notice this, pick up on it. 
because they're ambiguous characters. We don't know their intentions. We don't know their backgrounds. We, we don't find out until later that Matt is CIA. He says he's DOD consultant, but Reggie actually guesses that it's definitely a CIA guy. And so they're ambiguous. And however, when they're on missions that are lawful missions, they switch to blue. So Alejandro, during the prisoner extraction, when they have to cross the border, he takes off his tan, his beige suit. He's got on a blue shirt. They switched back. They switched to blue when they're doing lawful things, and they switch back to beige when they get back across the border inside the interrogation room. Alejandro has his beige suit back on, and Matt has a beige shirt back on. And again, throughout Kate's distrust of the system and her kind of corruption, she becomes desaturated and eventually white. And this is done on purpose. This is like how Villeneuve and Deacons, they use those boxes and cubes to frame characters and prisoners to show how each of the characters in the movie are actually prisoners in their own way. And they also u- utilize these barriers to show the ambiguity in the film with curtains, windows, dust, reflections. You'll see a lot there's of characters. A lot of, there's a lot of shots of dust. Yeah, and they're on the other side of either dust or, or very thin curtains and stuff like that. And they also show, Deacons uses his lighting to show the motivations of characters. So, for example, that final scene when Alejandro is trying to get Kate to sign the paper, he's in the very, he's in the dark of the apartment completely in shadow and she's being lit up by the kitchen light and she's just fully lit up. He's a, a villain and she's a protagonist in that situation. And then can I just play off that for a sec? Yeah. And that's the, that's a great shot because it's yeah. the, the culmination of who's good and who's evil. Alejandro yeah. at this point has, we've seen him do so many bad things in the third act of the film that he's now evil. He's the bad. Whereas obviously Kate is in the light, but then right after this scene is the moment where Kate, um, contemplates shooting Alejandro and he is now standing outside in the light and she is standing in on her um, porch in the shadow with a dark background behind her because she's about to do she's she's possibly about to commit something wrong and so there's a lot of moments like that where Deacons is showing the the motivations and intentions behind these characters in every situation yeah and I want to just stay on the cinematography of Deacons and also this topic of light and dark Visually, because the first half of this movie, it's always kind of lit very well. It's in daylight, a lot of shots in the desert with the sun up or in these brightly lit conference rooms and boardrooms. And then the second half of the film and almost entirely the third act of the movie during this tunnel raid is in the dark. And you so- can even say the second act of the film is a lot of dusk. Yeah, to- yeah a lot of sunsets. Yeah, you're right. And there are even some scenes that are shot entirely in the dark and Deacon's Kind of like going back to Zero Dark Thirty, utilizes techniques that coincide with the gear of the tactical teams in the in the scenes, like night vision goggles, and then that awesome black and white thermal vision, as well as he actually uses the dark to his advantage, like that beautiful shot of of the SWAT team with the knife, like looking out the tunnel, and we just see the knife getting closer in frame, just engulfing the dark sky behind him. And also the the highlight of the film in terms of cinematography is that shot during the final mission when. Um, the sun is setting in the desert, and the entire squad of soldiers are walking away from camera. And the further they go, the lower they ele- they, they elevate. And as they walk, um, they begin they begin going lower and lower in the frame until they all disappear in the hor- on the horizon line of the of the silhouetted uh, landscape. A lot of people you might not understand cinematography or cameras, but this is so hard to do because it has to be so precise. You don't have a lot of time to get these shots and you have to frame them perfectly because you only have so much amount of time with these they call them golden hours, sunsets or sunrises. Yeah. And it, it's beautiful filmmaking and one of my favorite parts about uh, obviously the utilization of these these night vision techniques with the night vision goggles and thermal vision is they originally didn't plan that. They they actually lit the tunnel scene, the exterior of the tunnel, before they go in to obviously make it seem like it's at night, but so that audiences can see yeah. the characters, you know, like a normal film. And then they got there and they realized it doesn't make sense that this this team that's supposed to be operating in complete darkness, we you can see them visually. So it just doesn't make sense to the scene. That's something I've always seen in movies and been like, oh, it's not, I mean, who? how can they not see? Why are they using night vision goggles if they're, I can see on the screen? Yeah, so they incorporated then the night vision goggles that the team would use and then the the, the the thermal camera, which is made by Fleur, it's a camera company, and that was actually the point of view of Alejandro was that thermal vision camera. Yeah, and the, and the team was the the green light, and it's an amazing moment. It's so exciting to see this footage, especially the first time. It was like mind blowing. You're like, is this real? And then you're like, ah, this this is real. And I think, um, I, if I remember correctly, the crew said that 
um, their footprints would be visible in the thermal vision for up to, I think, five minutes. But there's a reason they were visible is because they had a prop guy who heated the soles of their shoes so the yeah. footprints would actually register more prominently throughout the length of the shot rather than just a couple seconds and dissipate. And that's for the audience to be able to see them, the, the footprints. So it's a stunning sequence. It's so cool. You've never seen... Uh, an action sequence like that in any films before is similar to zero dark 30 in a bit a bit yeah but not the thermal imaging which is so cool yeah it's fascinating to think that there are people out there that actually do this kind of stuff yeah it's pretty wild and i think roger deakins was a necessary hire for this film because although this movie has a lot of scenes of intense violence and it's very graphic at points it does carry on at a very pensive pace it's it, there are slow paces throughout the, the storyline a lot of landscape shots a lot of long cinematography and i think you need someone like roger deakins to be able to entice the audience to keep wanting to see the next shot and to be fascinated with each with each frame of film and and just trying to analyze everything that's going on in every single shot and every bit of lighting and every piece of wardrobe and i think that roger deakins is is so essential to that to also you know they use a lot of natural lighting in this movie and to embrace that and embrace the contrast and the shadows and it, I think all that creates so much tension that just builds constantly throughout the film. Uh, when you look at Denis Villeneuve's other films that don't have Roger Deakins as the cinematographer, you can see the what it's lacking and what he the magic he brings to his films. And I think this movie is an example of why Deakins switched to digital. He stopped shooting film um, a long time ago, and so he'll shoot sometimes with the Coen Brothers just because they love film. He'll shoot film with them still, but. Um, every other Deacons movie, it's going to be a digital camera, and he likes to use the Alexa. But this movie shows exactly why he likes digital, because it gives you so much latitude and so much um, scope in terms of what you can capture. Yes, film, I think, is more beautiful looking, and it, it, it has richer colors and textures, and I think it's just better quality. But uh, in terms of digital filmmaking, the cameras are able to capture so much more in terms of light, whereas there are several scenes, and one of my favorite scenes visually is that scene after the border crossing when they get back and, and um, Kate uh, and that other soldier go to the roof and they go they look at the uh, the firefight in the distance in Juarez, and um, that entire scene takes place in very dim lighting during dusk. Like, the sun is, like, about to set. Your eyes wouldn't yeah. be able to see much. Like, it does, it, this is, like, the thing when, when we see sunset in real life with our own eyes... Um, when the sun's dying and the it, the it's the entire landscape is blue, it's all blue. Like the the red's almost gone. And film cameras, it could have captured this, but everything else besides the sun would have been very dark. And these digital cameras are able to expose everything in such dim lighting where it can capture the sun and the scene and the actors perfectly. And I think that these are things that Roger Deakins had always wanted to do, but had never never had the ability to do with film and now that he has these amazing incredible digital cinema cameras he can do things he never did before yeah that's called dynamic range everybody where you actually get that detail in the shadows and the darks and the black points of an image and then you also don't blow out the highs and super brightness of the highs in the in the picture and these current film these current digital cameras what they're using these cinema cameras have incredibly high dynamic range and yeah. it, it gives you the opportunity to ca capture images like this for that's, sure. That's something film just doesn't have where with film you either have to choose are we going to expose for the highs or are we going to expose for the lows? Whereas now you can do everything. I mean, new iPhones can do it. It's pretty crazy. And the cinematography, th th there's a lot of really beautiful shots, just simple symbolic shots. Like early in the film, Kate is washing her hands or she's in the bathroom. I think this is after she takes the shower watching the blood off her head from the, the SWAT raid. And she's looking in the mirror at her sink, but it's fogged up. And it's a perfect, like, kind of a 50-50 shot of her and then the, her reflection. And it, it's kind of, like, foreshadowing who this, who this character is. is it, she's going to maybe become a ghost, or she's going to, like, lose herself in this, in this new world, or she doesn't know where she is. And again, she, is she going to become an ambiguous character just like Matt and Alejandro? And also, I think they did a calling card to No Country for Old Men where the next time she's washing her hands and um, they do that overhead shot of the sink. And I think it's literally them referencing No Country for Old Men when uh, Anton Chigurh washes his hands after killing that first deputy. Yeah, the reflection uh, in the mirror. So I, no, no, above the so overhead. And then it's looking down on the sink, washing her hands. I think it's an exact replica of that old shot. So I think that they're just like doing a nice little Easter egg reference to that movie. And Johan Johansson, 
who did Arrival and who passed away much too soon, uh, I think like four or five years ago, his his score in this movie is incredible. And we just have these these tones and these like these like these deep strings, like bass strings. Yeah, it's very intense and it just like adds to the tension of of the cinematography and the tension of the scenes. And I think just kind of like that main theme, it's called the beast and it's, it's so intense and eerie and, and terrifying. And it also amps you up at the same time. And whenever you hear that in the, in the movie, you know, something crazy is going to happen. You know, they're either crossing the border or they're going inside that tunnel. And it's, it's, it's phenomenal music to accompany the film, especially in the border crossing scene, which is so intense because it, nothing happens until they are returning to the States. But uh, when they are entering Juarez, it's just, I think the could be the strongest sequence of the entire film because it's just cinematography and music, and that's it. There's no dialogue. They're not. There's no one do, giving exposition. All we see is the journey from El Paso into Juarez, and it's a stunning moment of the film. The cinematography combined with Johan Johansson's music is just unnerving and so intimidating. And I remember every time I watch this movie, I've seen it like six times and I still get goosebumps and I'm still, I get it fearful for the characters as they enter this area. And because you can just, the way it's shot and the way it sounds, you can just feel the dread. Yeah. And that's a great scene to show Kate's point of the, her character in the movie being a vehicle for the audience. And just like her, we're experiencing entering Juarez for the first time. And she had no idea she was going to Juarez. She thought she was going to El Paso. And we just have to watch her enter this this what seems to her to just be a, a different world. It's a, it's a different planet almost, and it's almost like a war zone. And she's exposed to to mutilated bodies hanging from a highway. And laissez-faire attitude that the other SWAT men have is 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 disturbing to imagine what they've seen and been through. And Alejandro barely bets an eye of everything what's going on. He even points it out to her. And so this scene just per- perfectly encapsulates her role in the film. And also the border scene is the big crisis moment for Kate when she finally understands that what these guys are doing is not operating on the legal grounds where it's a, it's a, a great moment in the film when um, they kill the cartel members on the border during that uh, ra- rush hour traffic jam. Kate realizes that uh, these this team that she's with, they aren't doing what she was told they're doing. And this is the first clue to that. Yeah, she's a complete fish out of water. Just like we are as as we're watching this, and it's taking a toll on her emotionally and physically. And even Reggie makes fun of her about her bra and makes fun of her about her her clothing, how she wears the same same shirt every day, and her her eyebrows are getting bushy. She starts smoking again. Yeah, she, and she's gradually starts smoking. And after after that shootout, she starts bumming cigarettes from everybody. And then eventually, at the end of the film, she's smoking her own packs of cigarettes. She goes through a major transformation in this film, and like you said, she is. The surrogate audience member. Um, and also you can kind of look at her as kind of an antagonist to the film and to the overall intention of these this team because they're trying to do what they're given permission to do by the American government to make a difference. And she, at a couple of points, tries to stop them. And she even, she tells Matt at the end of the op that she's going to talk and tell everyone about what they did. And you can see that she becomes an antagonist to Matt and Alejandro. That's interesting you brought that up because, you know, each time I watch this, the more and more I, I see it, I'm trying to I'm trying to understand, like, maybe who is the protagonist of the film? Is there even a protagonist? Is it... Moral Kate? ambiguity. Is it Alejandro? Is it Matt? Or is, like, Kate is, like, that constant observer, and she doesn't partake in much of the action. She's usually in the back of the group, back of the pack, and then Alejandro seems like a good person, but then we see him do horrible things, and then Matt is just... Matt seems like he could have been a great politician. He's just he's very charming, but he's also a huge asshole at the same time. And he's <laughs> he's taking advantage of people and, and keeping everybody in the dark. And it's it's hard to figure out if there even is a protagonist in the story. I don't think there is a protagonist, but I think that they're they are their own protagonists and they both so Matt and Alejandro are a protagonist and Kate is their antagonist and vice versa. Kate is a protagonist and, and Matt and Alejandro are, are her are her antagonist. So I think it goes both ways for them. But there is so much moral ambiguity in the plot of the film and the motivation of the characters that there, you can't just say this is the good guy and that's the bad guy. And that's the whole point of the movie is because in these situations, in this in this pretty basically underground war that's been going on, uh, there it's hard to say, is America really the good guy going like 
by doing these things and and it's it's hard to say yeah i mean that's definitely a good thing you brought that up i mean obviously it's a hollywood film but in america is portrayed basically as kind of this innocent country above mexico that never did anything wrong in a way and, and they don't really show any of the actions that the united states governments and agencies and things that they've done that have helped obviously didn't start the drug war but if it did or not or, but it definitely helped grow the drug war and remember helped... fausto at the end says where do you think we learned it from yeah and again and again i mean you can find tons of documentaries and read books and do tons of research on all sorts of operations that the united states did with mexico or with the cartel or getting munitions down there and so so it's it's tough to watch it and i think i think they should have touched on less of the ambiguity of the United States and their role in the drug war with Mexico and the cartel and maybe be a little more honest or at least touch on some of the the shady things that have taken on. But again, it's a Hollywood movie. And to go back to who the protagonist is, I think they realize they need a hero kind of at the end of the movie. They need someone to stand up on top of the mountain and and say they won. And Alejandro is basically that character as he finishes off the film by single-handedly taking down the the main cartel boss. And I think that's just... It wasn't going to go to Kate. It wasn't going to be Kate because of how vulnerable her character became and and how she couldn't, like like Alejandro says, she's a sheep, not a wolf. And again, I think it's a Hollywood movie and it needs a hero. And if, if you had to pick a protagonist, it's probably Alejandro. Yeah. In a weird way, in a sick way. Yeah, exactly. Because you know that what he's doing does actually could make a change in the tide of what's happening in terms of the crime and, and the warfare. And so... I would say, yeah, he definitely, you could consider him the protagonist of the story for sure. But even just to play off that, his motivation to do it is revenge. It's not out of some self-righteous yeah. way. And he kills three innocent people. Yeah, he kills he, children. Yeah, he kills children. So it's a, it's, a, it's a complicated movie, and it's a fascinating movie. And I think uh, one of the greatest moments of the film is the ending, the, the, literally the final scene. And what happens is Silvio's son and wife, they go to his soccer game. Silvio's been killed by Alejandro. And this soccer game takes place on a field right outside the border. You can see the border in the background. And I think ultimately what this film is de- is depicting in is this theme where um, in America we we live in we very much live in relatively safe re- relative safety. You know we we live comfortably here. And in other countries they don't have that luxury, uh, especially countries like this in certain areas that they live in dangerous areas and neighborhoods. And so I think this scene where these children are playing their soccer game, and then out of, out of nowhere they hear rapid gunfire echoing in the distance, and they stop for a moment. And it's really interesting because nobody panics or runs away. Everyone just looks out into the distance from the direction of the gunfire. Um, a little curiosity, but nothing too extreme. And then, uh, like nothing happened, they just turn back to this game and they start playing again. The ref blows the whistle and the kids start playing soccer again. And I think ultimately what they're saying is that uh, there are people in this world that uh, hearing gunshots is a common place for them, and that's that's not fair. You know what I mean? We should. It is important to respect if you live in a in a comfortable area to to be a little grateful for it. You know, or try to put your sh- sh- put yourself in the shoes of somebody who doesn't have it as well off as yourself, and kind of yeah, like you said, don't take life for granted or or what you've been given for granted. And, and I kind of want to retrace my steps on something I said where I said. There, that America is kind of just portrayed as an innocent bystander. I think that now thinking about it, John Barenthal's character shows the corruption of of the drug war into America because he's a he's an American cop and he's in Texas and he's kind of like a cowboy. And, but really, he's he's not a hitman. He's not an assassin. We think he might be, but he's not. He's just trying. He's working for the cartel. He's in over his head, as he explains, and he's trying to get information from Kate. So I think maybe. Barenthal is a little taste of the connections and corruptions of the United States in their involvement in the drug war as well. well I think Matt is definitely oh, yeah, a Matt for sure, yeah. of that because he is someone who carries out illegal ops on behalf of the government. You know what I mean? But, so. he, but, he's act, but they, they use him as a reaction to the drug war. They don't say that he's part of the source. I adore this movie. It's, I, I think it, it got four or five Oscar nominations. It, it got uh, cinematography for cinematography score. Um, sound editing, and something else. I can't remember. But it did not get directors. It did not get best picture. It did not get actress. 
and did not get supporting actor. And I think it should have gotten nominated for all of those things and even editing as well. Yeah, how Benicio didn't get nominated yeah, blows my mind. Benicio should have won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Instead, he did, he got snubbed. And Emily Blunt is an absolute, absolute revelation in this movie. I think it's her best performance. And she's had some really great performances. And I think uh, Denis proved himself to be uh, one of the greatest um, filmmakers working currently. And I, I love that he has now made the transition into big budget films like Blade Runner 2049 and now with the highly anticipated Dune. I just want to see Dune so bad. Yeah. So I think that having a filmmaker of his caliber in terms of his artistry and his craft to make huge sci-fi movies, I think it's fantastic and I can't wait to see more. Yeah, this might be Benicio's best role since 21 Grams. And I think it's my favorite performance that he's ever done in I love this guy so much ever since I saw him in Usual Suspects, and he's such a talented guy. And I think you can't top Traffic. Yeah, he's great in Traffic. He won the Oscar for Traffic. And he plays a uh, military—he plays a a cop in Tijuana in that movie, I believe, right? So it's a very similar topic. Um, And he actually reprised the character in 2018 with the sequel, Sicario, Day of the Soldado. But Villeneuve and Deacons didn't work on that project. And it's actually a pretty good sequel. It's really cool, but but I think that his character, Alejandro, in in the sequel may be a little too much— backstory a little too much exposition and he loses that mysterious edge and ambiguous character and and the the evil nature behind him because he does have some positive motivations and actions in the film yeah with the uh the entire storyline with that young girl and i think his character works best as a supporting character how about some fun facts or you got more let's do it i'm good let's do some fun facts josh brolin benicio del toro daniel kalua john barenthal maximilio hernandez are all part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and even Emily Blunt was originally cast as Black Widow, but had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts. Dude, literally in, in five years, everyone will be part of the MCU. <laughs> hey man, every <laughs> actor, our Marvel just keeps throwing bags of money. If I was a, a Oscar-nominated actor and they offered me bags of cash, I'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll be a cat. <laughs> a cat. <laughs> Bordering just south of the United States, Juarez is located in the north end of Mexico. However, shooting for the across-the-border scene actually took place on the outskirts of Mexico City in the central region of the country. On certain clips, one can see the name of the mu- one can see the name of the municipality Ciudad Neza, as well as a campaign banner rooting for the mayor elected on the year of filming. And actually, the mayor of Juarez. He uh, led a petition in protest against the film when it was being released because, as you mentioned earlier, and we were talking about at the beginning in the backstory of Mexico and the crime there, um, there was a time the mayor said that there were where Juarez was like this, and it was a very dangerous place to live. But it's it's different. Although the murder rates are higher, it's it's a much safer place to live and and less gang cartel activity. And he wanted to protest the fact that, as we explained earlier in the episode, that. The screenwriters and storytellers basically kind of cherry-picked their favorite or most dramatic things that they discovered during research probably for the dr- the drug war of, of Mexican cartel. That wraps our episode on Sicario. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Take care, everyone. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast.